encourage you to maybe just even volunteer one week instead of going and signing up to, to be. But go see what they do. Stacy and, and uh, Sarah do a great job of having age-appropriate stuff for the, for the children to be in, involved with. It's, it's easy. It's fun. Uh, go, go see if you haven't been back there. First thing I have for you this morning is to report the results of the vote we did at the family meeting a week ago. I'm, I'm excited to be able to tell you all that, that Dan Didrikson's will now be our Director of Discipleship. Dan's first day will be uh, the 15th. Of August, so he's going to start pretty soon. But one, since he wasn't able to be here in person when we announced him, or when we voted on him, he's got 60 seconds. To <laughs> Great! I already missed my first cue, so that's a good start. Great! <laughs> now, hey, I'm so excited and thrilled um, uh, to just have a chance to to run with you guys, to to see Jesus, and to just chase after him. And it, it's really incredible, encouraging. Um, as some of you know, I've worked with crew the last 28 years, college students here at USC this last year. Um, and Amy and I have long said, man, it would, to get me to leave something I love like that would have to be a very special place. And we are absolutely convinced that Riverside is an incredibly special place. And we're just so thankful to be able to, to go with you and to, to love our community, our, our culture, um, with the love of Jesus and point them towards that. And so super thrilled to do that. Um, as Kit mentioned, I, mean, I will be starting. Actually, September 1st is, is the oh, first day. Right, tricked yeah. you. So I got but I'm ready to start today. So I don't know. I don't know if I can wait that okay, long. Okay. Okay. But uh, so ready and excited to do that. But we wanted to finish strong with some of the students on campus before I started coming over here. And so that's kind of our, our thoughts there. But thank you all so much. And uh, I look forward to getting to know you. And so, man, we'd love to connect. Lunches, you know, coffee, whatever that. Um, just to continue to get to know you and get kind of ready to to run with you where God has us going. So thank you all so much. And uh, have a good worship this morning. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, I've had the unique opportunity to get to know Dan and Amy and the children as part of our small group there in Armo. And so I do encourage you to get to know them and uh, know that you'll support them in their ministry going forward. And now, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7, starting at verse... 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul when he said that we have the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Lord, set me aside so that your word will speak clearly to all who hear it today. Amen. Please be seated. Let's set the stage for this parable. Jesus is having dinner at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. During the meal, a woman who is referred to as the town harlot in Peterson's The Message paraphrase, comes into this Pharisee's house, comes up behind Jesus weeping, wetting his feet with her tears. Then she dries his feet with her hair, kisses them, and anoints them with oil. Can you imagine what was running through the minds of the people in that room? Why is she here? What does she want? How is Jesus going to react? What will I do if she comes toward me next? What's the host going to do? The writer tells us what the host was thinking. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this parable. The other three gospels include a similar story of a woman anointing Jesus' feet, but that seems to have occurred later while he was traveling to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. John identifies the woman in that story as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And Jesus explains that she has anointed his body beforehand for burial, and that what she has done will be told throughout the world in memory of her. But the woman in Luke's story today has little in common with Mary. Her reputation was based on her life of sin. The writer does not deny that she was a sinner. Even Jesus notes that her sins were many. The Pharisee could not imagine that any upright Jew, especially one who is supposed to be a prophet, would allow such a woman to dare touch him. However, like Mary, this woman displayed overwhelming devotion to Jesus. 
Apparently, at some earlier time, she had encountered Jesus in his ministry and believed his message of forgiveness and grace for all who turned to him. And now she was boldly, shamelessly, living out of that forgiveness. Her love has driven her to action. But as much as we can learn from the woman in this story, there's another sinner who seems to be the focus of Jesus' mission that night. Picking up at verse 40, isn't it so typical of Jesus to both take initiative to speak into the stunned room and to do so as if the host's thoughts had been spoken out loud? And he directs his words to the Pharisee host. Simon, I have something to say to you. So Jesus begins the parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Well, at this point, my engineer brain jumps to try to turn that, those numbers into something I can make sense of. So if a denarius is a, a day's wage, then 50 would be 10 modern five-day work weeks of wages, so about two and a half months. 10 times that would be over two years of wages, substantial uh, forgiveness. At that point, Jesus asks his host, now which of them will love him more? Seems to me that Simon was wondering if maybe this was a trick question. Uh, the way he answers, the one I suppose for whom he counseled the larger debt. Well, the host was probably relieved when Jesus affirmed that he had, had uh, judged rightly. But then Jesus started meddling. The passage immediately preceding this, Luke notes that, quote, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John the Baptist. Denny talked some last week about the Pharisees. They were among the religious leaders. They were committed to obeying all of God's commands, including a couple hundred others that they made up for themselves, and were admired by the common people for their apparent piety. Paul says that he was a Pharisee when listing his religious credentials from before his conversion, all of which he later said he counted as rubbish. But many of Jesus' harshest words were directed toward this group. He spends much of Matthew chapter 23 warning the crowds about the difference between the Pharisees' teaching and their actions. They preach but do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts. He calls them hypocrites and says they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He says they are blind guides who tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Here in today's passage, Jesus' words are less biting, but every bit is true, and directed specifically to his host. In judging both the woman as a sinner and Jesus as not much of a prophet, he exposes his self-righteousness. There's a strong parallel to Jesus' parable in Luke 18, which I think is going to be on the screen, which Jesus told, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee thanked God that he was not, quote, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The tax collector, however, stood far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus adds that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus doesn't have to look far to challenge Simon's righteousness. Point by point, he contrasts Simon's failure to extend customary hospitality by, of washing a guest's feet, greeting them with a kiss, and anointing their head with oil, to the effusive devotion shown by the woman Simon judged to be a sinner. It was a kind rebuke, but clearly a rebuke. And by comparing his actions to those of the woman who the Pharisee had so despised, he emphasized the omissions in his host's hospitality, his devaluing of the woman, and his lack of love for Jesus. I think it's noteworthy that Jesus begins his listing of Simon's lapses by asking him, do you see this woman? Clearly he did not. She was rubbish, lower than a slave. He didn't notice her enough even to protect his guests from being bothered by her after their, during their meal. But Jesus saw her as a child, someone's daughter, sister, made in God's image, fully aware of her shortcomings and her desperate need for the forgiveness that he offers to all who repent. After comparing the overflowing attention that the woman showered on Jesus with Simon's stingy hospitality, Jesus really colors outside the lines as he gets to the heart of the parable, which speaks to the hearts of the Pharisee and the woman. Look at verse 47 with me. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. I want to be clear here. Her love is evidence of her forgiveness, not the cause of it. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. She did not earn her release from the grip of sin. But because she recognized that Jesus was the forgiver, she broke social boundaries, risked human judgment, in reckless love for her Savior. As a Pharisee, Simon would be well familiar with the need for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus' words exposed how little the host felt the need for that forgiveness. He loved little because he had been forgiven little. He has been forgiven little because in his mind he has little from which he needs to be forgiven. And that is his more glaring sin. The one Jesus is trying to bring to the surface, his failure to recognize his need for a savior, even the savior sitting at his table. That's where this parable gets personal for me. 
The more of life I experience, the more I realize how easy it is to slip into living like a Pharisee. Like them, Riverside is very intentional to ground our worship and ministry in Scripture. I think most of us here would agree that that is perfectly appropriate. But how watchful are we to make sure that right doctrine doesn't become a point of pride? Few of us here have spent time in prison or make a habit of abusing, abusing a spouse or a child or a co-worker. But do we look for and take advantage of opportunities to work for justice and to bless others who share our paths? Wayne reminded us a few weeks ago that nobody wins at the comparison game. The only standard we can use for God's righteousness is His Son, Jesus. And I assure you that I cannot stand up under that light. The times that I'm closest to God always reveal how far away I am from His holiness. One scripture I keep marked in my Bible is Isaiah chapter 6 that may be on the screen. There the writer says that he, quote, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I can identify with Isaiah's response in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Church, I confess that too often I slip away from that clear sense of my own unworthiness. Jesus warned his disciples to watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, knowing that the church would be susceptible to falling into this same sinful pattern and thereby deserve the sim a similar rebuke. We need to guard against trusting in our spiritual disciplines rather than in our Lord. Do they lead you into Jesus' presence? About a year ago, I felt a need to add some structure to my prayer practices. For about six months, the new pattern was very helpful, helping me to keep focused both to make time for prayer and toward the situation and people that I wanted to keep before the Lord. However, recently I sensed that this part of my prayer time was becoming wooden, wrote. So I've made some adjustments, again, with the goal of spending time with God. The mechanics aren't important. Growing as disciples in our likeness of Christ, in our love for Him, that's our task. Recently, I had an experience that highlighted how subtly self-righteousness can manifest. I was at an event at Oliver Gospel Mission when a gentleman a few years older than I am came and sat down near me. He was dressed as a laborer and was wearing a baseball cap. I introduced myself and asked if he was new to the mission because I didn't recall seeing him there previously. He gracefully introduced himself as Doug and noted that he was on the mentoring team. After the program, I found myself outside on the sidewalk on Taylor Street, standing beside Doug as he prayed for his mentee, a man I've befriended for a number of months, who had experienced a relapse into alcohol abuse. I was humbled by his prayer for my friend and convicted 
that I had assumed that he was a newcomer to the recovery program. While I had treated Doug with kindness and respect, I recognized that in my heart I had assumed that somehow I had something that I could do for him. In other words, that I was better than him. In that moment, I was as blind and unseeing as Simon. I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit's gentle rebuke that morning and pray that I will watch my heart for this sort of attitude going forward. I wonder too if sometimes we love little because we undervalue our forgiveness. Part of it may be that we fail to see our sins as the terminal disease that they are in God's economy. How often are we brought to tears of sorrow over our sins, whether things done or things left undone? Or perhaps we don't consider often enough that it's only because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that we aren't all bound for the eternal torment and anguish of hell that Denny referred to last week and that Jesus made so very real in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Wayne spoke on a number of weeks ago. I'm not sure how anyone could seriously reflect on the amazing gift of an eternity in God's kingdom as opposed to eternal punishment and not rejoice. What a reason for thankfulness. What a reason for, for love. So let's not miss Jesus' words in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, many sins, a lifetime of sin, open sins, all forgiven, made clean. How many folks around that table that night do you think expected that to be that way that evening would unwind. We don't know the circumstances that led to this woman's situation. Most commentaries assume that she was a prostitute, probably not a path anyone would choose for themselves. She would have been an outcast among her family and all righteous Jews, and probably lived under a cloud of shame and unworthiness. The host's contempt for her is exactly what she would have expected from most upright people. But Jesus. The Savior does not contemn her, but rather speaks forgiveness over her. And her actions are evidence of her acceptance and thankfulness for that great gift. Like her, we are able to live free from judgment from our many sins both in this life and through eternity. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The words in ver this verse are the same words that Jesus spoke to the paralytic who was lowered through the roof tiles by his friends in Matthew 9. In both passages, the onlookers question who Jesus is that he can forgive sin. In Matthew's passage, Jesus tells the paralytic, quote, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Church, this teacher 
is more than a prophet. Our passage concludes in verse 50 with Jesus telling the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, we've heard these words before when he healed the woman who had suffered with a bleeding disease for 12 years and was cured when she just touched the fringe of his garment. These women both trusted in Jesus, not in their own righteousness, not in the law. We would do well to follow their examples. Where do you see yourself in this parable? Are you living out of confidence, gratitude, and deep affection toward Jesus like the forgiven woman? Are you like the other guests at the dinner who are questioning who this Jesus really is? Could you be trusting in your rituals and the knowledge that you follow the rules and try to live a good life like Simon? Or like me, do you experience times when you identify with all three of these? The verses immediately preceding this passage, Jesus says that his detractors call him, quote, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Thank God that's true. Jesus proved that charge both in today's passage and earlier in chapter 5 while at a feast set in his honor at the home of Levi, a tax collector. We have those verses on the screen. We're told that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know Jesus' response. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The sick, both physically and spiritually, responded with love to Jesus. He healed their diseases and lifted the weight of their sins from them when they repented. The religious leaders had no love for Jesus. They had not received forgiveness from him, not because it was not offered, but because they didn't think they needed it. They failed to accept the great gift that was freely offered. They refused to see themselves as sick. Earlier I said that there's another sinner who seems to be the objective of Jesus' mission that night. His words to Simon are convicting, but not as severe as some other exchanges he's had with Pharisees. Could it be that Jesus was at that dinner that night to call his host out of his self-righteousness and contempt for others who didn't meet his standards? In truth, he didn't even meet his own standards. Could it be that Jesus' objective was to open the Pharisees' heart and mind to the reality that the guest at his table was more than a prophet, maybe even the Messiah that the scriptures spoke of? Could it be that Jesus' mission that night was to bring that truth not only to Simon, but to all those missing the point, trapped in sin and in need of peace for their souls? 
like me. Maybe like you. The good news is that Jesus is not rocked back on his throne waiting to see if you and I can find our way to him. No, he comes after us. He pursues us. He woos us. He loves us enough to even use hard things to gather us to himself. He is eager and the only one able to lift us out of lives marred with sin and wash us clean in the sacrifice of his blood. And he's given us a pattern to help us remember his sacrifice in the new covenant. The communion table set. At this table, Jesus is our host. And he invites to his table all those who are willing to trust in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to walk among us, to teach us about your kingdom, and to be the perfect sacrifice for our many sins. Open our eyes to all the ways we fail to love you and our neighbors as you desire, and help us to earnestly turn from our sin confident that you are quick to forgive. Fill us with gratitude and overflowing love for your gift of salvation. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.